Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Today I'm going to start our study of the book of James. We're going to start in chapter 1 and go through verses 1 through 15. I am going to call this section the testing of faith, starting with verse 1. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes and the dispersion, greetings. Before we go through the verse, let's go through a brief introduction of the book of James. This is mainly, not all, but mainly from the NIV study Bible that I was using at the time. When I took these notes, the author is probably the brother of Jesus, and I'm going to say almost certainly the brother of Jesus, so that's who we're going to take him as. He couldn't have been one of the, of the three other James in the New Testament. For example, James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John the Apostle, he died in 44 B.C. when he, Herod Antipas, not Herod Antipas, I'm sorry, Herod Agrippa I killed him with a sword. That's recorded in Acts chapter 12, I think. Some people do say that the James that wrote this book is that James, but most people don't. And the other two Jameses that are mentioned, James the son of Alphaeus was one of Jesus' brothers and one of the disciples, actually. And neither had the stature or influence that this James had. I guess that's why they call him James the Lesser. So we're going to assume this is Jesus, James, the brother of Jesus. He was also called James the Just because he was so righteous. He was probably the oldest brother of Jesus because he heads the list of brothers in Matthew 13:55 which says this, it, the people were saying, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? So you see James is listed first. That Judas is probably J the same Jude that wrote the book of Jude, incidentally. But James is mentioned as the, old, as the first, so we can maybe d deduce from that that James is the oldest brother. It's not a slam dunk, but that's generally how you list brothers in chronological age order. Now, James, at first which is ironic considering his exalted status in the church. He didn't believe in Jesus when he was growing up with him. He had, a, he had a brother. His older brother was the son of God and the creator of the universe, and he didn't believe in him. Grew up in the same house with him. He even challenged him and misunderstood his mission. We read this in John 7, verses 2 through 5. The Jewish test festival of tabernacles was near, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea so your disciples can see your works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then in verse 5, the parenthetical statement, For not even his brothers believed in him. And of course, his brothers would include James. However, despite that unfortunate start, he became very prominent in the church. And I'm going to show you how he was prominent in the church. First of all, he was one of the select individuals Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. Then he, Jesus, appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So at some point, and we're not sure when this was, but James saw Jesus physically resurrected. Paul called James a pillar of the church. In Galatians 2, 9, we read this. When James, Cephas, and John, Cephas is Peter, when James, Cephas, and John recognized as pillars, that's pillars of the Jerusalem church, Acknowledge the grace that had been given to me, dot, 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 dot. So James is called a pillar of the Jerusalem church. Another fact that shows how prominent James was on Paul's first conversion trip to Jerusalem, Paul saw James. Galatians 1.19, Paul says this, But I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Not only did Paul see James when he had freshly been converted on, his, on that trip to Jerusalem, but also on Paul's last trip to Jerusalem after the third journey when he brought the Jerusalem poor offering to Jerusalem. What do we read in Acts 21:18? The following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. 
present. But James was mentioned personally. How about this? When Peter was rescued from prison, he told his friends to tell James in Acts 12:17, motioning to them with his hand to be silent. He explained to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Report these things to James and the brothers. This is Peter in prison. The Sanhedrin put him in prison. Report these things to James and the brothers, he said. Then he departed and went to a different place. Going further, we see that James was a leader in the famous Jerusalem Council, which took place somewhere around 49 or 50 A.D. In Acts 15, verse 13, we read this. After they stopped speaking, James responded, Brothers, listen to me. So he was prominent in that council. Now, he wasn't the head guy. You can read the Acts 15 closely, and you see that it's brothers. In fact, it was the brothers that signed the letter that went out and there were other people there besides James. So he wasn't the top dog, but he was a prominent person there. He was a leader, not the leader. We can put it that way. And last but not least, in the New Testament, showing how prominent James was, we see that Jude identified himself as a brother of James. He didn't say Jude, the son of Mordecai, whatever his father's name was. He said, well, I guess it would be Joseph. He didn't say Jude, the son of Joseph. James is so well known, he could just say, hey, I'm Jude could just say, I'm James' brother, and everybody knows who James is because he's so prominent. Jude 1.1, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. So we see James is one big, important person in the early New Testament church. He was called James the Just, as I mentioned early, earlier. He asked forgiveness for the Jews so much on his knees that his knees became hard like a camel's knees. Besides James the Just, he was also called the bulwark of the people. That was another nickname he had. He won so many people to Christ in Jerusalem that the Pharisees became alarmed. And now we'll see how James the Just, the brother of Jesus, was killed. By the way, which is in AD 62, because Eusebius of Caesarea quotes the earlier Hegesippus and quotes enough details about the death that the scholars can pin it down to AD 62. What happened was, is the Pharisees became so alarmed at all the conversions that were happening they thought they had a great idea. They said, let's put James on the temple and he can preach how strict the law is because James was noted for being strict about the observance of the law. And let us, let's let him preach about how the people are sinners and they're not keeping the law and that'll turn them off against this Christianity stuff. So James got up on the temple, started preaching. The next thing you know, the people began shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. He was converting people. He had a fantastic witnessing opportunity. The whole nation of Israel and the leaders of Israel sitting there arrayed in front of him, and he starts preaching. So the Pharisees got upset. They climbed the temple, and they pushed James off. Now, James didn't die immediately. When he hit the ground, he rose to his knees and prayed, Father, forgive them. So the Pharisees, those tolerant people, stoned him. And a fuller used one of his clubs that he used to beat out his laundry. A fuller's a launderer. Used one of his launderer's club to smash James on the head and killed him. Well, that's unfortunate in the short term, but James had a huge influence on the early Christian church. As I said, he died in 62, so the letter had to be written before then. Some date the letter letter in the early 60s. However, it was probably written before 8050. I saw one scholar estimated at 45, which makes it fairly early as the letters go. I think the, early, the book of Galatians was even earlier than that, or close, it was in the early 40s. Why was it probably written before AD 50? Well, it's distinctively Jewish, and that was at a time when the church was distinctively Jewish. Stephen's persecution happened around 34, and then right after that, the church got persecuted and headed out of town, except for the apostles. 
And so that was very early. And so the idea is, well, James probably ruled it sometime shortly after that, which would put it in the early 40s because it's so Jewish, because there, there weren't any Jewish, any Gentile Christians in Jerusalem at the time. Here's something even more telling. No reference is made in the book of James to the controversy over Gentile circumcision that was taken up at the Jerusalem Council, which we know took place somewhere around 48 through 50. So the guessing is James wrote his book before the Jerusalem Council. So that's why I say 45 is as good a date as any. Another reason that it's probably in the 40s is because the Greek word synagogue is used to describe a church meeting. And if it had been after that, most probably the church people would have called it an ecclesia, used the Greek word for church instead of the Jewish word. Well, it was a Greek word that the Jews used to describe a synagogue. For example, in James 2.2, for example, a man comes into your meeting. It's a Jewish word there, not, not Gentile. So we're seeing early Hebrew Christian church, even earlier than the book of Hebrews. If the early date is correct, and I assume it is, then that means that James is the earliest New Testament book, except maybe for Galatians. Galatians and James are two of the earliest. Now, who were the recipients of the book? James addressed the book to the 12 tribes in Israel. Now, who are the 12 tribes in Israel? Well, Clark says that's just a name for Christians. It's a Jewish name, but that's the old. James is using old Israel terminology, but the new Israel's here now, and so he was referring to the new Israel by using old Israel term, terminology. Just like in Hebrews 8, Jeremiah is said to be making a new covenant with the, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So the author of the book of Hebrews is use, Hebrews uses Old Testament terminology, even though he is obviously talking about the new covenant. So the same idea is here. So that that could very well be. However, I think it's more likely that James is writing to Jewish Christians. Twelve tribes would more naturally apply to Jewish Christians. And not to mention that the contents of the letter is obviously written to Jews. It's not written to Gentiles. Now, Adam Clark's got an off-the-wall suggestion. He says the twelve tribes of Israel should be taken literally, and that James was writing to Jews, ethnic Jews, believing and unbelieving. That is an off-the-wall suggestion to me, folks. He's writing to Christians. He's not writing to non-Christians. How in the world could Clark say something? Like that. I don't know. Now, these 12 tribes are said to be in the dispersion, these Jewish Christians. I'm going to assume the Jewish Christians he's talking about. Quite plausibly, they were the Jewish Christians who were scattered after the persecution which killed Stephen in about AD 34, right thereafter. Stephen's killed in Acts 7 and Acts 8. The church is scattered as far, and we know it was scattered as far as Phoenicia, right to the north, Cyprus in the, on the island there to the north and west in the Mediterranean Sea, and Syria and Antioch, which are straight to the north of Phoenicia. That's where the church went in Acts 8. Acts 8, 1. Saul agreed with putting him, Stephen, to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. That's, that was just the beginning. Then after they got north of Samaria, they kept going. They were in Phoenicia, present-day Lebanon, Tyre and Sidon. And then after that, it kept going to Cyprus, which is in the ocean a little bit, in the Mediterranean Sea a little bit to the west. And then, of course, Syria and Antioch, which is to the north of Lebanon. Acts 11:19. those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, right there to the north, Lebanon, Byblos, Tyre, Sidon, Cyprus, the island in the Mediterranean, and Antioch of Syria, which is a little bit north of Phoenicia. And these disciples were speaking the message to no one except Jews. All right, so there's the dispersion that James is talking about. Now, this reference 
to these scattered Jews in Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Syria and Antioch would account for several things in James's letter. His reference to, reference to trials and oppressions, because they were definitely oppressed, they were persecuted. James' intimate knowledge of the readers, he knew these Jewish Christians who got scattered, and the authoritative nature of the letter. He knew them, and he had authority over them because they were familiar with one another. Now, here are some distinctive characteristics of the letter. It had an unmistakable Jewish nature. It preached that, it taught that good deeds must accompany faith. It had a simple literary organization. It was similar to Old Testament wisdom literature like Proverbs, a lot of exhortations to do good. It, ha- it used excellent Greek. And here's something interesting is the author, James, was very familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, with his half-brother Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to give you some of the parallels, which are quite astounding. I, I hadn't noticed it before until I went through this exercise. So let's start with what Jesus said in Matthew 5.3 in the Sermon on the Mount. The poor in spirit are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs, James says in James 2.5. Listen, my dear brothers, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? The kingdom of heaven is theirs, Jesus said, and James says they're heirs of the kingdom. The poor of this world, Jesus called them poor in spirit. James called them poor of this world. They're going to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom. How about Matthew seven fifteen through 20, where Jesus asked his readers to beware of false prophets. Matthew seven fifteen through 20, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you will recognize them by their fruit. Now that very familiar passage of Jesus is reflected in James. James chapter 3 verses 10 through 12. Praising and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers, these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig produce olives, my brothers, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt water spring yield fresh water. So that's James's version of you got to know them by your fruits as Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount. Also, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, in the Sermon on the Mount, the peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called sons of God. James said in James 3, verse 18, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. Peacemakers. Let's see, Matthew 6, verses 19 through 20, Jesus exhorts, don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. James reflects that in James 5 verses 2 through 3. Your wealth is ruined and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your silver and gold are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You stored up treasure in the last days. So James talks about the transitory nature of wealth. Jesus has done the same thing. Put your treasure in heaven where moth can't get it. Rust, the rust can't rust the, I think that's clothes because back then in the ancient world, wealth was kept with clothes and rust would be the, what moths do to clothes and ruins all that fine silk because, let's face it, gold doesn't rust and silver doesn't rust. So it never did make sense to me. 
Also in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, don't take false oaths. Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, says Jesus, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it is God's throne or by the earth because it is footstool, or by Jerusalem because it is, it is the city of the great king. Neither should you swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but let your word yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. Now, what Jesus is talking about when people would swear by the temple and the oath would be good, but then they swear by the gold of the temple and that oath would not be good. Somebody speculated, I read it's because gold is used in commerce and that makes it somehow less worthy. And so you've got to swear by the whole temple, not just by the gold. That kind of tricky oath that is dishonest, basically. And James backs that up in James 5.12. He says, Now above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. Your yes must be yes and your no must be no so that you won't fall into judgment. So isn't that amazing how James incorporated the Sermon on the Mount into his life and then preached it back out when he had the chance. Now in verse 1, we finished with our introduction. Now we'll start with verse 1 which I probably should read to you again because you've probably forgotten it. James, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, James starts out by calling himself a slave. Most of the time in the New Testament, the writers started out by calling themselves an apostle. Now, James was an apostle. We know that from Galatians 1.19, but I didn't see any of the other apostles except James. So we know that Peter was an apostle, James was an apostle, Paul was an apostle, Barnabas was an apostle. Lots of apostles, but James didn't bother to put himself in that august company, in that august band of apostles. He called himself a slave. Now, that's humility, folks. Jude does the same thing. It's interesting, the two brothers of Jesus are very humble when they write. They don't say, I'm the half-brother of Jesus. That wouldn't have been very humble, as Adam Clark says. Now, notice this expression. He's writing to the 12 tribes of of Israel. There's a problem here because the 12 tribes of Israel didn't exist anymore. They hadn't existed as 12 tribes since 722 B.C. when the Assyrian Empire carried off the northern 10 tribes when they invested Samaria and conquered it. So how do you explain that? Well, this is not hard. We talk about the 300 Spartans. There weren't 300 Spartans left by the time the Persians nailed them at Thermopylae and that famous battle in the First Persian War in the... uh, Yes, in the First Persian War, when Darius the Great's troops attacked the allied Athenians and Spartans, and Leonidas puts himself in the gap up there at Thermopylae and dies and makes a heroic name for himself for all the next two, mm, two and a half millennia. And so we all know about 300 Spartans. We watched the movie. There weren't 300 Spartans. They're not exactly. That's just the name they had. They started out being 300. They didn't end up that way. Just like the 12 apostles started out being 12. But heck, they were only 11 after Judas died. And now, but we still call them the 12, even though there were only 11 until they elected, who was it? Matthias to replace. It was Matthias to replace Jude to make them 12 again. So that's just the name, the 12 tribes of Israel. James says, greetings, very simple greeting there, greeting there, greetings. This way of greeting is only in James and the letter from the Jerusalem Synod to the Gentile churches, according to James and Fawcett and Brown. And so those commentators say that we can hook those two letters together. It shows that both James and the letter of the Jerusalem Council are genuine. It tends to show they're genuine. It also tends to show the influence of James at the Jerusalem Council because he got him, he got him to write the letter that the way he normally writes. 
We go to James 1, verses 2 through 3. Consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And, of course, he's writing to people who have been persecuted by the Jews in Jerusalem after Stephen's death. Now, the joy sounds like we have joy when we get persecuted. Well, folks, I think where the joy comes is when you endure the persecution. I don't think anybody gets up and says, oh, hallelujah, I'm being whipped and beaten to death. That never sounded right to me. I like to, we need to read verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. It's the endurance in getting through the trials that we're happy about. But I'll tell you, you know, look at Jesus. Did he look like he was joyful in the Garden of Gethsemane? He was sweating blood. Christians have normal emotions, and we don't like being tried any more than anybody else does. But the difference is is that non-Christians, when they're tried, they don't have any hope. We have hope. We know that we can get through the trial because of Jesus, and, and we can endure. Matthew 5, 11, and 12, Jesus talked about that in the Sermon on the Mount. You are blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely slay every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we need to remember that when people are saying bad stuff about us, hey, we're going to have the last laugh. Our reward is going to be great in heaven. Paul says in Romans 5, 3, And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions, because Paul had plenty of afflictions, because we know that affliction produces what? Produces endurance. And isn't that what James says right here? Can it all joy, my brothers, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. That's the answer to trials, is endurance, is to tough it out through the grace of the Spirit until you get through it. Now, we need to talk about this idea of testing, the testing of your faith, and also that word various trials. That word is extraordinarily confusing, not only in English, but in Greek and in Chinese, too, I've discovered, unfortunately. Now, the way the NIV Study Bible distinguishes the two, and I think this is clever, difficulties from the outside are called trials. Difficulties from the inside are called temptations. Now, both of those are bad things, trials and temptations, but one is a moral internal test, if you will, and the other is an external test. Afflictions, persecutions, bad things happening to you, that's an external test. I'm going to talk about the word trials and test a little bit more further on in this audio, so we'll hold on till we get there. But the trial that we're talking about here is a is an external trial caused by that persecution. It's not an internal temptation to moral turpitude. Not in this case. It's fairly easy to tell from the context what is being talked about in this case. John Gill says this is obviously not a temptation to do moral evil that, jo- that James is talking about here because there's nothing joyful about that. Count on all joy when you get seduced by the devil to look at the half-naked woman. No, that's not what it means. Adam Clark says this, quote, the word perasmos, which we translate temptation, signifies affliction, persecution, or trial of any kind. And in this sense, it is used here, not intending diabolic suggestion or what is generally understood by the word temptation. So Clark makes the distinction very easily. We go to verse 4, chapter 1 of James. But endurance must be must do its complete work. The trial produces endurance, and endurance produces a complete work, a mature work, a perfect work, a finished work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Folks, if you're going to grow, you've got to go through trials. I don't know how else to put it. It's just like you want to do good at calculus. You've got to take calculus exams, calculus test, calculus trials. So that, endure, that trial is producing endurance, and it will produce maturity, and every Christian has trials. That's the way it is on this, in this veil of tears that we live in. Now, when it says 
when in, that endurance must do its perfect work so that you may be mature, James says. Well, that doesn't mean that the Christian arrives at sinless perfection. It just means grown up. Now, Gil says it does mean sinless perfection, but in the next life, but I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think James is talking about this life. You can be mature. You can be grown up. You know, little babies don't go through tests. You coddle them. You know, you take movies of them and laugh and listen to giggle and tickle them and you know, you don't test the little babies, but once it gets, they start growing up, they got to, well, they got to start taking tests at school, and then they got to deal with the troubles of this life. I'll never forget one time I was at a 50s party. This was in the 80s or 90s. It was a retro-type party, and some little two-year-old kid walked in the room and started crying, and a friend of mine looked at him and said, hey, what you crying for? Where do you see what's really going to happen? <laughs> so. I never forgot that. I said, that's a terrible thing to tell a two-year-old kid. But let's face it, that's the way it is in this earth. Trials everywhere. But the trials do not destroy us. They make us mature. They teach us how to endure. James 1, verse 5. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and without criticizing, and it will be given to him. The NIV Study Bible says that wisdom is what enables one to face trials with pure joy. Wisdom is not merely acquired information It's rather practical insight with spiritual implications, as as the NIV Study Bible puts it. Wisdom is how you use knowledge, is how I always say it. Now, you ask God, it gives you to all kinds of wisdom generously and without criticizing. Why does James say, even suggest, that God might criticize you for asking for wisdom? Well, Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown say that what James is trying to guard against is Christians thinking that when they pray and ask for wisdom that God's going to bring to mind previous sins they've committed. and For example, dear God, please help me know what to do in this situation. And then God answers back, well, if you hadn't been so stupid and got yourself into this jam to start with, you wouldn't be facing this horrible problem that you've got if you had acted with wisdom in the beginning. God doesn't do that. He might point out to you that you screwed up, but he's not going to beat you over the head. He's a loving God. He's going to help you get it straight. We go to verses 6, 7, and 8, James 1. But let him ask in faith. This is asking for wisdom. Ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. An indecisive man is unstable in all his ways. A doubter is like the surging sea, Ephesians 4.14. Paul says this, Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit, tossed by the ways, by heretics. Now, what Paul is talking about in Ephesians is that you're in church life and every joint supplies what every joint needs and what the body needs and the body grows up into maturity into the head and you're not tossed around by heresies, basically. Well, likewise, and and, and Paul in Ephesians uses that analogy of being tossed by the waves because if you're in the middle of of the ocean and the waves are going up and down, it's terrible. In fact, it's life-threatening if it gets too bad. And James says a doubter is just like that. They're surging sea. Going this way, going that way, tossed this way, thrown that way. You don't expect to receive anything from the Lord. Classic example of this, I love people, they say they'd like to speak in tongues. Well, you know, but I'm not sure. I think tongues are psychological, and, and it might be the devil that's causing me to speak in tongues. And Paul said that not everybody speaks in tongues in 1 Corinthians 12, but, of course, 
when they quote that famous verse, they never mention that Paul says, be imitators of me as I imitate in God, and I speak in tongues more than you all, so maybe you ought to imitate Paul and speak in tongues like he does. Well, no, they never say that. All they got is doubt, doubt, doubt. And then they complain when they don't speak in tongues. Well, folks, if you go to God and ask for something, you can't go like that. You've got to first find out whether it's God's will. And if it's God's will, then go for it. I never pray for somebody to get filled with the Spirit and speak with tongues unless they're convinced in their mind that it's in the Bible and it's for them. If not, I'm not going to pray for them because they're likely not going to get it because they're being tossed here and there. I remember when I was in college, I used to read when I was first presented with all that charismatic stuff. I remember I would read all the primitive Baptist stuff and all the reform stuff about how terrible all this speaking in tongues was and it was enthusiasm and it was or psycho psychologically induced and all this stuff. And I finally said, you know, these people don't know what they're talking about. This is nonsense. And so when I asked, I wish I could say I was as confident as James wants us to be. I wasn't quite that confident, but I was a lot more confident than going to God and saying, well, I just don't know. I, I believed it was real and I wanted it. And it's not just true of speaking in tongues about anything else you want from God. There's a lot of other things in life if you if you believe that God will give it to you. And I don't mean a Rolls Royce or something Creflo Dollar might desire. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about some, something that's in God's will for your life, something that's good to spread his kingdom and to establish you in the kingdom. Well, then pray for it. Pray without doubting. You'll get it. Don't be unstable. An indecisive man you'll be if you doubt. Gil says you're troubled. He's troubled, he's restless, he's unquiet, he's impatient, he's fickle, he's inconstant, he's unstable, he's unsettled. Is that the way you want to pray to God? No. King James, instead of indecisive, said he's double-minded, which was a common term the rabbis used for a man who loved both God and things of the world. Adam Clark says James may have been thinking of those who incorporated the law with gospel. A double-minded man, I want to keep the law, oh, I want to love Jesus. I'm not sure that's what James meant, but I know people like that, they're so... They can't get rid of the law. All they can think about is law, 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 instead of Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Here's some scriptures from Paul in Romans 4.20. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened his faith and gave glory to God. That was Abraham. Abraham didn't waver in unbelief. He believed him. James 4.3, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, double-minded people. Their double-minded is not so much doubt and belief, but sin and purity. But the point is, if you're going to come to God, believe in him. And if you have trouble believing, then the way you pray is, God, help my unbelief. Help help me have more faith in you. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. That's a strong statement. You doubt, you're not going to get anything from the Lord. Nothing. Nada. And, of course, that means anything that was prayed for. Now, God, being gracious, he'll give Christians all sorts of things they didn't pray for. I mean, after all, he even makes the rain on the unjust as well as the just, as that famous scripture says, and those and the unjust don't even know him, much less pray to him. So God, you know, God, in fact, there's another verse that's got to do more than you'll ask or think because he loves his children. But on the other hand, he expects his children to pray and he, specifically and to pray for things and believe that God's going to answer those prayers. He likes that. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Verse 9, James 1, the brother of humble circumstances should boast in his exaltation. Now, James may have had in mind here people who were poor, brothers who were poor because of all the trials they were experiencing. Remember in verse 2, he's already said, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. So already they're in humble circumstances because they're having their property taken away from them and they're being thrown in jail. 
So he mentions trials in verse 2, previous to verse 9, these these humble circumstances that are mentioned in verse 9, and he's going to mention it again later in verse 12. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. So, you're humble, you're being tried, you should boast, you should be proud of, you should brag about the fact that Jesus is going to exalt you. And how is he going to exalt you? By believing in Christ. Because you believe in Jesus. Jesus has been raised from the dead. You're going to be raised from the dead. And even if they kill you, you're going to inherit eternal life. And how long is eternal? I mean, that's forever. How good is eternal? Pretty darn good. So, if you're poor, don't look around and say, oh, how poor I am. I wish I was rich. Think about, boy, when I get, if I can endure this life at the end, I'm going to be richer than any anybody can imagine. Because what I've got waiting for me in heaven. James 1 verse 10, but the one who is rich, this is a contrast. Verse 9 is James is talking to the poor brothers, telling them not to gripe and complain about their humble circumstances. Now he's going to talk to the rich brothers in verse 10 and say, don't brag about being rich. But the one who is rich should boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like the power, flower of the field. I don't care how rich somebody is. They're going to die. Look at Jeffrey Epstein. Oh, he had a private 747. He had his own island, pedophile island in the Caribbean. He had mansions scattered all over the country, and he passed away, allegedly, by suicide in his jail cell after he was jailed, and all his billions finally didn't get him what he wanted, and he was—he died a pretty humble death. Now, the fact that James addresses rich people in the church shows that there were rich people in the early Christian church. Now, a lot of people like to read 1 Corinthians one twenty-six and say otherwise. That verse says this, Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth, and powerful and noble people usually were rich, and not, they didn't have that many of them. That's true. Most of the church were slaves. They were poor. But there were some that were rich. And James says, just because you're, and they didn't ask him to give all his money away. He never said that. I mean, think about it. If the rich person gave all his money away, let's say rich person, rich Christian A gave all of his money to rich person B. Well, then A would be poor. Now rich person B would have a lot of money. He's got to give all that away. Well, what if he gives it back to rich person A, to poor person A? He's poor now. I mean, you say, that's silly. That's not what you do. You put your money out to invest it. You make to create jobs, to create more wealth, which you give away. You give it to the poor. You give it to itinerant ministries. And God will give you what you need to live. That's just all the way. That's just... That's just the way it is. The rich man's going to pass away like a flower of the field. Flowers are kind of delicate and fragile. The sun gets them, and they shrivel up and die. That's what's going to happen to you, rich man. What does it mean as a humiliation, this rich guy? Does it mean the lowest state from which he was called to become a Christian? He's, he might be rich, but he's a lousy, rotten, miserable sinner like everybody else is. So you need to remember that rich guy. You were a sinner just like your poor brother. Well, it could be. Or it could mean that the one who is rich should boast in his humiliation because he's going to be stripped of all his wealth when something goes wrong, like often happens to rich people. I don't think that's what he's talking about. He's talking about passing away. That means dying like a flower in the field. That'll make you humble. Can't take it with you when you go. Job 14.2 says this, He blossoms like a flower, then withers. He flees like a shadow and does not last. James chapter 1, verse 11, For the sun rises with its scorching heat and dries up the grass. Its flower falls off, and its beautiful appearance is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will wither away while pursuing his activities. James is quoting from Isaiah, which says mostly the same thing. Isaiah 40, verses 6, 7, and 8. A voice was crying, cry out. Another said, why should I cry out? All humanity is grass, and all its goodness is like the flower of the field. 
The grass withers, the flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on them. Indeed, the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. I love reading. I like history, and I love reading biographies and historical accounts of great people like Alexander the Great. He was 30, I think he was 30 years old when a fever took him out after he'd conquered the whole known world. He faded like a flower real fast. Hamilcar, who was the famous Hannibal's father, if I remember correctly, he drowned crossing a river after he was trying to conquer Spain from all the indigenous tribes there right before Hannibal, a couple of generals before Hannibal took over in the Punic Wars. Gone. Zip. Just like a flower. We go to verse 12, James chapter 1. A man who endures trials is blessed because when he passes the test, he will receive the crown of life. Notice that test and trials is the same word, basically. A test is a trial, and a trial is a test. A man who endures trials is blessed because when he passes the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Now, James is repeating what he said in verse 2. In verse 2, he says, consider it. It a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. In verse 12, he says, a man who endures trials is blessed. And again, there's that word endure again. You go through the trial, and in the end, it produces endurance. Now, here's some other scriptures that talk about being blessed under trials. I think it's good to read this because this is sort of counterintuitive. It, runs, it rubs our flesh the wrong way. Matthew's five, Matthew 5, 11 through 12. You are blessed when they insult and persecute you. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven. Romans 5, 3. We also rejoice in our afflictions, because we know that affliction produces endurance. 1 Peter 1, 6. You rejoice in this, though now for a short time you have had to struggle in various trials. But rejoice. James 1, 2. Consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials. I've read that verse several times. Trials and blessings are go together, folks, and endurance. Those three words, trials, blessing, and endurance. We are not blessed because of the trial, in my humble opinion. The trial is evil, and as a result of evil, however, we are blessed because of the endurance that the trial produces. Here's a good quote from somebody. I don't have a, a note as to who wrote it, but it's a good quote. None attest their love more than they who suffer for him. I just saw a video, a Netflix video, about this woman from Alabama, a young woman. She's got a couple of kids, and she had an atheist husband. He got saved, and she was a athletic type person who ran and all and she got some kind of weird joint disease and then something else went wrong and pretty soon she can't eat and after she has to mainline food into her intestines and she doesn't have enough she has to be on oxygen and oh my gosh it was just so sad and that woman was full of love for jesus and she says i don't care because what i'm going through now is bad but it ain't bad when i didn't know jesus i doubt she would have gotten to be on that video sharing her testimony with scadzillions of people if it hadn't been for that weird disease that she got. Not that I'm saying that disease is good. Disease is evil. It's from the devil. It's from the fallen world. It's bad. Anybody who's been sick knows it's bad. I'm not saying that. But the endurance that the trial that this woman went through was a good thing. God took evil and turned it for good. Let's don't forget that sickness is not good. It's evil. But God can take evil and turn it to good. Now, the person who endures suffering will receive a crown of life. The Greek word is for a wreath, not really a crown. A crown is a metallic thing. A wreath is an organic thing. Back then, in the ancient Greek games, wreaths were placed on heads of athletic or military victors. Adam Clark's got a good quote here. He says, He is crowned who conquers and none else. Jameson Foster and Brown disagrees that James is referring to an athletic wreath here because this would not be a natural illusion for someone writing to Jewish Christians as James was. 
Well, I don't know about that. He might have been right to Hellenistic Jews, and besides, the Greek games were famous all through the ancient world back then. I'm not sure, so sure that Jewish Christians might not have understood that reference. But the point is, you run an Olympic race and win. Ooh, you had it made. Everybody loved you. When you go through the, the trial that you're going through like a race, and God rewards you with eternal life, ooh, you're going to feel better than an Olympic champion. God has promised this, and God, when he makes a promise, it's going to come to pass. You love him, promise to those who love him. If you love him, you're going to have the crown of life, eternal life, hot diggity dog. Other scriptures that say the same thing, Second Timothy 4, 8, there is reserved for me in the future the crown of righteousness. Paul says this a couple of years before he was martyred. He says, Paul's go, Paul says he's going to get the crown of righteousness, but not only me, but all those who have loved his appearing. All other Christians are going to get that same crown. 1 Peter 5, 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Revelation 2, 10, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison to test you, and you will have affliction for 10 days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. You die here on this earth, and you're faithful up until the time you die on this earth, you're going to get the crown of life. That was John writing to the church at Smyrna. Now, of course, this crown of life, you could say, well, that's the crown of life here on this earth, too, but I don't, you, you, you get through the persecution and you live, and so then you get a crown of temporal life. I don't think so. The NIV study Bible says it's eternal life in the future tense of will receive indicates that, but you could also say the future tense means after you pass your trial in the future you'll live. So it's a little bit ambiguous, but I believe it's the crown of eternal life. I think that's the way most people take it. James chapter 1 verse 13 says this, no one undergoing a trial should say I am being tempted by God, for God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. Now we're going to get into this word tempt try and test. It's all from the same Greek word. The, in, in English, you see the words are very close and confusing, and I've, I've learned this about in Chinese, too. You've got the same problem in Chinese. You have to, whenever you talk to a Chinese person about this, you have, to, you have to split out the words and explain it very carefully because it's confusing. Now, I've, I've made a little, a little framework here to analyze this. First of all, there are two kinds of test. There's bad test and there's good test. Let's take the bad test first. There's two types of bad test. An external bad test we call a trial. An internal bad test we call a temptation. So if you're tested with a trial that's trying to destroy you, the devil's trying to destroy you with bad circumstances, that's a trial and is bad. Or if the devil is trying to destroy you with an internal test by seducing you to moral turpitude, that's temptation. The purpose of a bad test is to destroy you, whether it's an external bad test a trial or whether it's an internal bad test a temptation the purpose is to destroy you so if the devil puts you through a trial or if he tempts you internally he's trying to destroy you now there are good tests as well as bad tests a good test the purpose is to approve for example if you assay gold or test gold but the fancy word is assay you test gold to see its weight and purity you test it or what about when a teacher tests his students to see if the student understands the subject material? That's a good test, and the purpose is to approve, not to destroy. Now here, no one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God. That's referring to a bad test of an internal temptation. No one should say, I am being tempted by God to do evil. <laughs> In other words, half-naked girl comes walking down the beach. Oh my gosh, I'm being tempted by God. God's trying to test me to see if I can turn my head and not look. Uh-uh. God doesn't do that. You do it or the devil does it, but God doesn't do it. 
And James says this, for God is not tempted by evil. And if he's not tempted by evil, he's not going to tempt anybody else to do evil. He doesn't tempt anyone. Point blank, that's the end of the story. And it's talking about internal temptations to do evil. Now, we shouldn't say that God never tests somebody in the positive sense to approve someone. Genesis 22.1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. God tested Abraham when he said, Abraham, I want you to, to, to sacrifice your seed, the only seed you've got, Isaac, the forebearer of all the seed that I promised you that are going to cover the earth and that are going to give blessings to all the nations. I want you to kill him. Well, that's a test, and it says so right here in Genesis 22.1, after these things, God tested Abraham. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, was tempted by the devil. You would probably say tempted rather than tested. The words, English words, you can actually switch them out if you explain the meaning all right, because they're that close. But tempted is the word we most of the time use to talk about internal temptations to do evil. Matthew 4, 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The devil was trying to put, trying to lead Jesus into moral sin and transgression. You also could say, hey, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil because, to be, excuse me, to be tried by the devil because it was an external trial. He was hungry, didn't eat. Or you could use the generic term. Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness to be, to be tested by the devil. In that case, that word is generic and it could mean either an external trial or an internal temptation. So you see the words are very loose, very fuzzy. There's not, there's not sharp clear red lines between the definitions for those words. So you've got to explain what you mean when you use those terms. Now, why does James even mention this? Why does James all of a sudden, in the midst of this thing about being, it's blessed when you undergo a trial, why does all of a sudden he say, well, no one should say I'm being tempted by God? Well, there's a reason for it. He's guarding against something. He's just finished saying that those who are tried are blessed. Are blessed, And so then it would be a logical thing for someone to think, well, good. That means when the naked girl comes down the, <laughs> the beach, I'm being blessed because God's trying me. Uh-uh. That ain't the way it works. In the previous verse, verse 12, James had said this, Blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. So, see, James is saying, oh, it's a good thing to be tested. It's a good thing to have trials. So, therefore, it's a good thing when the devil runs that naked girl in front of me on the beach. And James is saying, no, nah, don't you think that? God's not doing that. That's the devil doing that. That's your flesh doing that. That's not God. He's not tempting you to sin. He'll test you to approve you to help you get through a trial. But that's not the same thing as he's bringing you into temptation. I remember spending years being confused by those verses. It's all because of the definitions of the word. We go now to verses 14 and 15. We'll finish up this section. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. His own evil desires as opposed to God. God does not tempt anyone to evil, but you are tempted. God doesn't tempt anyone by evil, but you are tempted when you are enticed by your own evil desires. In other words, your flesh will tempt you, not God, your flesh. So let's don't blame God for what you're doing. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Now there's a little biological metaphor. Let's see, how can I do this? The biological metaphor, if the couple has sexual relations, that's the being enticed. Then when the sperm hits the egg, that's the next step. That desire, that sexual desire is conceived. Sin, when the sperm hits the egg, not there's anything wrong with having babies, but it's just a metaphor. And then after the, the sperm and the egg have conceived, then nine months later, sin is birthed. It's kind of an interesting metaphor. Clark, when he looks at that word enticed, he says, yeah, somebody chasing sin is like a fish following bait. His own evil desires like 
bait up there, and you're the fish following it. I, I shouldn't laugh at this. It's a terrible thing when you entice me. Let's say you're an alcoholic, and you're enticed to have a drink, or you're a recovering drug addict, and somebody's got a snort right there in front of you. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. So let's say you're a sex addict, and somebody comes and some girl, some woman comes and offers herself to you free of charge. Oh, my gosh. That's That's tough. But... The temptation in itself is not sin. Now, Martin Luther had this famous quote. He says, you know, birds fly over my head. He's talking about sins. You know, sins are like birds. They fly over my head. I'm not responsible for that. I'm not sinning. But if I put a nest up there in my head and the birds come down there and lay an egg, well, now that's a different story. (laughs) Then I have sinned. So this shows that there is sort of a, a, a period of time between the enticement, the temptation itself, and the yielding to it in which you're not sinning. Being tempted is not sin. Jesus was tempted, but he never sinned. Likewise, if you are tempted to do something evil and the thought crosses your mind, that does not mean you're sinning. What you need to do if you immediately reject the thought, well, let's say, go back to my analogy, the the girl in the bikini walks down the beach, and you look and you say, oh, my gosh, and then you turn your head and say, I don't want that. She ain't got nothing my wife doesn't have, or whatever you do to not look at it. Well, that means you didn't sin. You know, you resisted the temptation. But now if you sit there and start saying, ooh, and you start taking pictures of her in your mind, you start thinking about her all day long, you know, now you're up to, I think what you've done then, you've given birth to sin. Your lust is is conceived and given birth to sin. And then, of course, when the sin is fully grown and gives birth to death, that's when you go out and have an affair with her, and she takes all your money and ruins your family and or her husband comes and shoots you or whatever else happens talk about these desires the niv study bible talks says that there are three stages to sin first stage desire second stage sin third stage death that's just what i just finished saying and you and you can see this according to the niv study bible in the old testament temptation what what happened first eve saw the fruit she desired it she hadn't sinned yet but then she said, I think I'm going to eat that without talking to my husband about it. So she ate the fruit. Ooh, now she has sin now. And then sin conceived when she, when God found out about it and sin and Eve lost her immortality. You could say the same thing about David and Bathsheba. Romans 1.24, God in talking about unsaved people, Paul in talking about unsaved people says, Therefore God delivered them over in the cravings of their hearts to sexual impurity. They long for it. Sin is a is slavery. So that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They were talking about not just heterosexual lust, but also homosexual lust, too. Let me give you a quote from John Gill. Again, talking about the idea of when the temptation comes and a sinful man gives birth to sin. Quote, sinful man is pleased with it, pleased with the temptation. And instead of resisting and rejecting the motion made, he admits of it and receives it and cherishes it in his mind. He dallies and plays with it. He dwells upon it in his thoughts and hides it under his tongue and in his heart as a sweet morsel, and forsakes it not, but contrives ways and means how to bring it about. And this is lust's conceiving. I love the way John Gill says things. Jameson Fawcett Brown says we should nip sin in the bud of lust. <laughs> the lust is there, the enticement's there. Stop it. Boom, I'm not going to lust for that anymore. End of story. You stop sin. Now, when sin gives birth... The examples I gave were as act of sin. For example, you commit adultery or something like that, or you shoot, or you snort some cocaine or whatever. You take the drink. So that's typically what you think about when you think about when sin gives birth. It's, it gives birth to an act of sin, not just the thought and you crave it, you love it, you think about it. 
That's when sin's conceived, and then when it gets birth is when you actually do something about it. And that's true. So let me read a quote from Adam Clark. It is, in the commencement, like the thread of a spider's web, almost imperceptible through its extreme tenuity or fineness, and is easily broken. For it is as yet but a simple, simple, irregular imagination. Afterwards, it becomes like a cart rope. It has, by being indulged, produced strong desire and delight. Next consent, then time, place, and opportunity serving that which was conceived in the mind and finished in that purpose is consummated by act. And I think that's true, but however, I think that a lust, an enticement, a temptation that gives birth to sin when people start yielding to it and it gives birth, I think that the giving birth could be even before an act of sin. For example, you think about it and pretty soon you're, you've sinned because you you conceive sin because you've been thinking about that sin so much, but then you just law and you just keep on and on and on and on thinking about it. Well, in my opinion, that's you know you think about doing the adultery, but you never get around to it because you're scared the husband's going to shoot and kill you. Well, you know that's a thought. You didn't actually do it, but I would say that the sin is conceived and has basically ruined your life with death. And death, by the way, is a striking contrast to the life, the crown of life that Jesus promises of us who are faithful through persecution. Verse 15, James says, when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. The wages of sin is death. You let sin keep growing and growing and growing and growing, and pretty soon you're a porn addict, and pretty soon you're a sex addict, and pretty soon you got 20 mistresses, and pretty soon your wife divorces you, and pretty soon you lose your job, and pretty soon you lose your ability to think, and pretty soon you lose your ability to feel. I like to watch these lifetime pornography movies about people who've been entrapped with pornography. I've also read a lot of good Christian testimonies about how horrible it is. I don't, I, I know somebody, I've known several people who've had trouble with it, but I didn't realize how bad it was when you watch these true life stories and testimonies. It kills people. It gives birth to death. Ladies and gentlemen, with that severe admonition and warning, we have now finished James 1, verses 1 through 15. In our next video, oh, excuse me, our next audio, we will cover verses 16 through 27. We'll learn what it means to be hung by the tongue, what James has to say about words. Now, I don't mean to th sound like this is going to be a hyper-faith word of faith, blab it and grab it, mark it and park it, confess it and possess it, scream it and redeem it, haul it and call it, type of lesson because I don't believe in that nonsense but we will see that words are very powerful that old idea about sticks and stones can hurt my bones but words can never hurt me is an absolute lie hope you stay tuned for that audio and I hope you enjoyed this one